you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world raise $130 million in growth funding and can help you fast track product market fit and where relevant, the launch of your token economy. Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome co-creator Malik Dow, Arjun Bhuttani. Welcome, Arjun. Thanks for having me. So it's not always that I introduce somebody as co-creator. Normally it's founder, co-founder, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. There's two uh, roles and responsibilities in, in the various stages, iterations, evolution of a DAO like Moloch. Um, but for those that don't know, Moloch DAO awards grants to advance the Ethereum ecosystem forward. The Moloch DAO is a widely forked and used economic experiment into sustainable governance of public goods. So several reasons why I've got you in the show. Um, we actually had Aaron Wright on previously of Open Law talking about Laos um, rather than DAOs. When we say a DAO, we mean a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, and a Lao is effectively one of those with a legal wrapper um, to uh, remove or protect liabilities. And I believe that is a kind of key characteristic and feature or innovation of um, Moloch V2. Um, but really, you know, so there, there is Moloch. And it has its specific purpose and function, um, as I said, associated to the Ethereum community. But at the same time, it's become a gold standard, really, for a DAO, designing a DAO. As I said, it's been forked uh, a number of times and has become a blueprint for DAOs generally and for approaches around decentralized governance. And you've pioneered a number of different innovations from things like Rage Quit, which I love, um, as I said, to, to Laos limited liability wrappers. Um, as I said, you describe yourself as a co-creator, not a co-founder, because um, these things involve several different types of people at different stages. Um, I guess Moloch, the closest thing that Moloch Dow has would be Amin, um, who kind of launched, created Moloch in... February 19. Um, but it'd be good to get some context as to the progress. So we talked about um, forks. How do you measure success? Is it kind of capital deployed into Ethereum? Is it is it that and, you know, the amount of forks? How do you measure the success of your experiment? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. We actually don't quite know because um, what we, we fundamentally try to build an open system. And the problem with open systems is like, it, it's really hard to tell who is using them. Um, right. So <laughs> initially we measured success by like the amount of liquidity and capital that was in the original model. Yeah, but then it was forked uh, a bunch and it's been forked so many times now. And then, you know, those forks have their own forks and so on and so forth. And so we don't know. I mean, we, we know that there are dozens of forks of Moloch out there. Um, we know some of the more popular ones, some of the more like prominent ones, like Metacartel Ventures and like, you know, the, the Lao and like, there's a, there's like a marketing, marketing DAO and there's a, a bunch of other ones that have been uh, a little bit more prominent in the space, but we, I'm not, I'm not quite sure beyond that. And I do think that, uh, even some of the DAOs, uh, I know, I'm not sure, uh, which specific ones, but I know that at least some of the DAOs that are being used in the space by like 
um, you know, DeFi protocols that are looking to centralize and other kinds of protocols involve elements of Molycan. And I, I know for a lot of people, a lot of founders that I have on the show, you know, they talk about this kind of pathway to decentralization, as you said, you know, whether it's a DeFi protocol that, that is looking to address governance and, and devolve um, more things to uh, to the community and the network. I think it's going to be interesting um, to talk specifically about, you know, the journey of Moloch and how it's evolved and, and a lot of the learnings that, that has come out of that. But before we do, I think it'd be good to just get some context as to, as to you as a guest. As I said, you know, we're normally we go into a lot of the background of the founder because it's very informative as to, I guess, the purpose of the organization. But as you said, you know, there are a number of people involved in Moloch and its success. Um, so it'd be good to understand uh, a little bit about your background and I guess how you would describe your role, whether it's whether it's always been the same, whether it's evolved. Um, some of the things that were quite interesting when I was looking at your background was that you originally studied physics and philosophy, which is an interesting combination. And actually, we have a lot of guests who are in the Web3 space that have studied philosophy. I don't know what it is um, about that association, but it'd be interesting to know a little bit about your role, how you would describe it. And I guess, you know, why, why you, why your background made you a fit with, with that role. And I say that um, openly because there's no reason why I should be doing what I do, by the way. I'm, I'm massively underqualified to do it. I just happen to find myself here, right? But it's, it's always interesting to see if there's a, is a, is a, an obvious connection between you know, a background and, and the personal journey and then like the role in an organization somebody finds themselves in? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I originally got interested in Ethereum because I think um, there's this really interesting, so basically like most of the problems in the world that we face today are like coordination problems. Like we've broken down to being coordination issues. Um, and, uh, and like in many cases, there's other, other aspects to them and other factors to them, but uh, fundamentally, the, the cost of how you coordinate around things is 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 like the usually provides the the kind of biggest barrier to to meaningful change. Uh, that's kind of what Moloch's goal is is to is to fig, is to to come up with a way to coordinate around like shared goods as best as possible. And and it, it's not even true that Moloch itself does that. The idea is that Moloch is kind of like a virus that over time will evolve and over time will be forked enough to the point where someone will build a version of it that actually works and that actually makes sense and that actually uh, is, a, is a real kind of game theoretic solution for, for coordination problems overall. Um, we started, so uh, basically we, we started Moloch, uh, started thinking about Moloch in like 2018. Um, Amin had the original idea and that was, it was just after he had left, left consensus and basically decided that he wanted to build like a, like a, alternative consensus, uh, a consensus where like, there's none of the like corporate parts of it. There's no like corporate oversight and stuff like that. But you still have like the, the core parts of the consensus, mesh, which at the time was like really, really, really strong. I mean, it's still very, very strong. And like, it's an incredibly powerful network of, of individuals uh, working very, very loosely together, but still working in, it in the same direction, coordinating around working in the same direction. Um, Amin's idea was Malik could be like a dark West Coast consensus. We literally wanted to be like the Sith of consensus. Um, it was pretty fucking awesome. Um, we uh, we ended up talking about it as like a as as kind of like an interesting uh, like conglomerate, basically like a like a uh, almost like a, a way to to build like bootstrap a 
Y Combinator like thing out of out of West Coast projects. Um, get them to coordinate around building like dev tools with each other and like building public infrastructure together. And then that way, like we could all benefit as as a result of making a, a small shared investment into these resources. And um, a lot of the context for this was coming from the fact that uh, you know I'm I'm also the founder of Connect, which is a, a different project that does like um, you know micropayments and cross chain uh, communication. And then Amin, of course, is also the founder of Spankchain, um, who was using Connect at the time. Um, so this this came out of a conversation around like, okay, well, how can we uh, you know Spankchain and Connect, and then also other organizations that are, are like us and facing the same problems, uh, pool funds to solve some of those problems. At the time, uh, you know, the scope of that, the scope of building like a, a Y Combinator like entity was just, just very, very large. Um, and so we, we started just thinking more abstractly about like coordination problems in general. And like the name Moloch came from this article that I mean, uh, sent me, which, uh, which was um, about like social coordination around public goods. Um, and, uh, and the idea is it's, it's kind of based off of an Allen Gettysburg poem um, about um, this like driving force in human nature that leads us to to create like suboptimal outcomes, right? basically race to the bottom situations. Um, this is this is something that's been like talked about a lot um, in e economics. It's been uh, like you know the the tragedy of the commons is like one of the earliest uh, discussions of this, and then there's like not Matt Carlson's uh, uh, logic of collective collective action, and then most recently there's like Eleanor Ostrom's. Um, uh, research, which you want a Nobel Prize for around like public goods funding. Um, and so there was, there's just a lot there to dive into, um, but it all kind of boils down to the same core issue, which is that when you put a bunch of people into a group together um, and, and they're coordinating around a shared resource, it's really, really difficult to get people to not cheat. Um, it's, it's really difficult, uh, you know, if you, if you have a, a field of farmers um, and each, each farmer has cows, uh, it's very difficult to convince each farmer to maintain their the number of cows that they have rather than trying to get more cows to deplete the field. Um, and so many of the problems that we deal with today, like, uh, you know, the environment uh, and, uh, and like, uh, you know, like lack of resources to, to solve world hunger and, uh, and like uh, even, you know, in Ethereum, this is, there, there's this big kind of collective action issue around like, okay, how do we, how do we fund Ethereum public goods? Um, all of those, fall into this category where it's like, nobody wants to pay, be the person to pay to do this. Um, and also like nobody wants to be the person who's left holding the bag. Um, so we ended up uh, just playing around with this idea for a while. Um, and this is, this is kind of goes into like my role um, and like everybody else's role. So at the time it was me, I mean, um, so Amin and James Young from the Spank Chain side, and then me and my two co-founders from Connects, and me and Lane Haber and Rafael Sifram from, uh, from Connects. Um, and we started playing around with like some of these concepts. And, and Amin and I came up with this like game theoretic like construction where people can pool their assets. Um, you know, they're like the, the model here was like everybody pools their own native token. Um, and then you now have like an incentive to do coordinate with each other to maximize the return that you get on that on, on like all of your pool so basically it's kind of like uh, we all would put funds into into this DAO. Um, we'd receive an index that represents the amount of money in the DAO. and then now uh, like our financial incentive is to maximize the index um, and the the ideas behind this are actually very very similar to the the, the constructions that were proposed by uh, in like Ostrom's research 
Um, now we, we kind of, we actually like built this out and fleshed it out um, and just kind of were doing it as an experiment uh, and realized that there was, there was this like really, really big problem at the time around Ethereum public goods um, and around how Ethereum funding was working. Um, and this was partly uh, an inefficiency kind of with the EF. Um, so like it was taking just months and months and months to fund grants. Uh, and partly that like other grant sources, other other places to go and apply for grants had kind of dried up or or just weren't really available. Uh, this was like, you know, 2018 depths of the bear market. So right. really funding was extremely scarce. We decided to pivot a bit. Um, so at the time we said, okay, well, you know, this more complex mechanism where we have a bunch of different tokens where you have every stakeholder is like financially incentivized to participate is really, really interesting. And that's that is definitely the direction that this should go. However, um, in the interest of shipping quickly and in the interest of solving this problem for Ethereum and just making a grant sound and just kind of getting like a V0 out there, let's just limit this to, you know, uh, one singular token, uh, completely not for profit. Everybody who is putting in money into this thing is just using it as a mechanism to like fund grants rather than uh, as in the interest of like their own financial return. That went live in 2018. And this was deliberately a minimum viable DAO, right? That's kind of how you referred to it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we came up with, there was like a few things that we did, uh, which I think have been really like influential to, to why Moloch has been successful, because pretty much up until that point, everybody who had built DAOs had like built these really complex things that, <laughs> which were extremely scary because of the actual DAO. Uh, and everyone was like, okay, well, how do we build DAO systems where like if a hack happens, you know, like every single person doesn't get screwed. Um, and, uh, and so we came up with a few constructions and, and you, you kind of touched on this earlier, but like the rage quit mechanism was really pretty much like the most powerful one where we said, okay, what we want and what we want the outcome of this experiment to be is not for our DAO to be successful because to be honest, like none of us had any financial stake in it whatsoever and none of us still, none of us do. Um, and so uh, you know, it was it was more like we wanted to kind of set a set of events in motion that could perhaps one day solve this problem for people more broadly. And the idea was, okay, let's create what is effectively like a like a, a meme um, <laughs> around this DAO, and let's make it so that if it, the current iteration of the DAO doesn't work, the best way that you can move forward is to just break off and splinter it and create your own intervention. Um, and that's fundamentally like how Moloch works is like, uh, if anything ever goes wrong, you just rage quit. Um, you have the ability to quit and exit with your funds and you have always have the ability to go and start off your own splinter implementation. So it's, it's designed to evolve. It's designed to actually break up into smaller and smaller pieces. And the thinking around this was that like very, very large DAOs are probably going to be unsustainable, at least until we have like you know, better practices uh, around smaller DAOs. And there's also going to be a lot of mistakes. There's going to be a lot of instances where people fork these DAOs, change some code, and then just throw it up and, you know, it could it leads to a hack. Um, but as long as that mechanism is, is in place, for the most part, people's interests are safe, for the most part. Do you think there's an optimal size for a DAO? And do you think that the focus of a DAO like a DAO is more likely to function better to have higher participation rates if its focus is narrower and better defined or? Yes. So that was another thing that we, so we, we ended up doing like a bunch of this research as part of, um, so when, when I was right, I, I wrote the white paper and then like 
I mean, did a bunch of this like research by talking to a bunch of people. Um, and what we found was that like, in general, it's, it seems like focusing DAOs on a specific outcome or on a specific goal makes more sense because when you have a bunch of conflicting interests, it's very hard to separate out like noise from signal. Um, and this is something that we actually faced ourselves. So when we, when we uh, released the first, the V0 DAO, initially that the goal was to like support these two funding, but then there was also like a bunch of other things that we started supporting. And like, um, I think we ended up having a ton of people in the DAO and there was a ton of money and it was actually really cool. Like pretty, pretty much right as we, we launched it, um, the EF put in a bunch of money and then like um, consensus put in a bunch of money. Um, and that, you know, there, there was a bunch of, there were a lot of projects applying, there were a lot of people participating. Um, but I think one thing that we, that happened pretty quick was that like both the lack of incentives and lack of like any upside potential and the fact that there were just so many stakeholders meant that uh, the participation actually dropped very significantly. Right. Uh, so this is one of the things that we, we kind of like saw, uh, like predicted in the white paper and then kind of saw happen in reality was like, in general, if there is no incentive to participate and if, and if there are a lot of stakeholders and they're coordinating around a bunch of different things all at once, um, it becomes really hard to actually get people to, to vote um, and to be there and to show up. And uh, <laughs> like, I personally uh, was probably one of the, the biggest kind of uh, examples of this because like, you know, of course, I, 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 we, we all had like our, our different philosophies on like the way that the roles that we should play into the, in the DAO going forward. And my, my personal philosophy was like, okay, well, you know, it's a DAO. So uh, we it, like, it, it makes sense for us to get it off the ground and it makes sense for it to get going, but we, we probably shouldn't be running it forever because then it defeats the purpose of the DAO. But I personally was one of the people who ended up kind of like having a hard time keeping, staying engaged and staying involved. Um, just as a result of the fact that there was so much going on. And I know also sometimes there's this principle of abstaining, right? So if if you're seen to have too powerful a voice in the community for, for the DAO to be effective, then you often have the people who have the most influential voice ab actively abstaining from things because they don't want to be seen to be too dominant with their voice, right? Exactly, yeah. It's the same kind of concept as like Vitalik trying to make sure that like, he remains the neutral third party to Ethereum development, but still is like involved enough that people know that like this isn't some you know he hasn't like rug pulled. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's a, it's a hard balance. Like on the one hand, like you know, and this is this is something that I, I think pretty much every person who builds something in Ethereum that ends up going towards decentralization needs to think about. You know, on, on the one hand, the right thing for you to do is to kind of fade into the blockchain. And, for, for other people to take up the mantle and for this community to become self-governing. On the other hand, you also need to make sure that you're still involved to the point where this does get to that point where like there are people who are uh, willing to take it up and willing to push forward. And like, you know, I think this is true across all DAOs and, and probably, you know, most democratic processes, right? Participation rates are pre generally pretty low. Um, and, you know, people prefer... Yeah, the whole reason why we have um, representative democracy is because most people prefer to defer to an expert or a perceived expert that devolve their the actual involvement in the process to, to, to somebody else. Um, but I think one of the things about a DAO is that anybody can make a proposal. And so 
I guess if there isn't a clearly defined reason for the DAO or in engineering terms, like an optimization function, a thing that the, the community are trying to optimize for, um, which it can measure, it can quantify, is it doing it? Is it being successful or not? Then in theory, you know, it's a carte blanche for proposals and, and the more proposals, presumably the lower the participation rate because of the signal to noise ratio. Um, and, and so there's, there's kind of like meta curation that needs to happen around proposals. And that, that was one of the things that we, we saw as well with the V0 is there's, you know, like there's a lot of needs-based processes that still have to happen. Like this was, this is absolutely a minimum bubble coordination mechanism. And the idea is more that this helps handle the situations where things break down. <laughs> this is, this is kind of like probably a, a result of, you know, uh, I mean, and, and I and like all, all of the basic, basically both of our teams working on state channels for so long because our whole philosophy around this was like, okay, let's only handle the case on chain where things break, where communication breaks down. Uh, everything else do it off chain. So, you know, don't worry so much about the actual processes that are involved because those meet space processes can be iterated on much more quickly than you can write new content. Um, and, and so long as like recovering from the situation where like, people just do not want to engage anymore, do not want to uphold process anymore at all, now you can fall back to the DAO uh, and the DAO's base mechanisms to figure out and resolve your dispute. So the DAO, in effect, is either to ratify, to like formally ratify a decision that's presumably consensus has been reached um, off-chain in the meat space, um, or for arbitration. Like, you know, it's broke, broken down and it can't be resolved um, off-chain. Yeah, exactly. And presumably that's kind of one of the things that's led you into the feature with Moloch 2.0, which is the Lao component. Because, of course, once that DAO is responsible for value, like economic value, and assuming, you know, they're, or designing for the fact that there, there will always be an outcome that, 49% of people are going to be unhappy with at some point. Um, if you don't handle liability associated to that, then in theory, and this is one of the things I remember, I forget who it was, years ago, um, you know, six, seven years ago, hearing a lawyer talking about, you know, code is not law. And um, the problem is if you don't base something like a DAO in a particular jurisdiction, then you're liable in every jurisdiction of a claimant. Um, so presumably that's kind of what led you into this, this Lao. And may, maybe we talk about the, what is a Lao and why you think that's important. And maybe I guess t it, that could be tied to this point around arbitration and resolving dispute. I will say that while, while like we, we tried to like favor means based processes, we also wanted to make sure that like the, the whole kind of benefit to the system in the first place was let's exponentially reduce the cost of coordination, right? And like, the cost of coordination, if, if you're doing only real-world processes, only legal, you know, actual legal documents is, is incredibly high. Um, you know, like even, even like, for instance, uh, the, the big part of the, the core, one of the biggest use cases of, of like the original idea behind Pollock, um, and this is not like the nonprofit grants version that we did for like the, v, like the original rollout, but then what, what Moloch V2 is. Um, because Moloch V2 kind of more, much more accurately represents like what the original vision, like the original ideas behind it were. The, the biggest, one of the biggest use cases that we saw was, was just making it incredibly easy to start funds um, for anonymous people on the internet without really even necessarily needing to know each other very well. 
be able to like pool funds together and invest into projects. Um, and uh, and of course, like the, the comparison here is that like the amount of overhead and and legal work and the amount of lift required to actually start a fund in a jurisdiction is 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 very 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 high. So this this sort of opens the gates for people to uh, to do this themselves. Um, the Lao was basically came as a result of realizing that you know this is that's not always going to work. Um, that might work in certain certain cases. So like you're you're mitigating counterparty trust, which is fantastic. But then there's there's of course like like again uh, existing social governance that we have in the real world that that you need to like address. And unless every person in the DAO is completely anonymous, which is definitely something that's possible and definitely probably the direction that a lot of this will go in the future. Um, but unless unless that's the case, uh, you need some sort of liability limitation, as you said. Um, so the law was was kind of, <laughs> I believe the the way that it was described was a, a legal condom. Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it's just like a wrapper to to ensure that that people who are participating aren't exposed to undue risk. Um, and I think that's a like as a as an innovation, I think it's as a legal innovation, I think it's absolutely fantastic because it definitely like uh, you know while it's no, it's not as as close as okay we we just you know pay uh, I was going to say a few cents but I guess at this at, at today's gas prices it's like hundreds of dollars but we just pay like a few hundred dollars on mainnet to deploy these contracts and boom we have this social coordination mechanism. Um, it, now there is a little bit more effort required, but it's still still orders of magnitude lower than what exists currently, or what exists outside of the crypto space. And so, uh, maybe one point of clarification: so the idea behind allow is effectively you get a legally compliant entity, typically an LLC or a C corp, in places like Delaware, and that that becomes, uh, I guess, that roots. The constitution of the DAO in in forms of legislation. Um, now, one of the interesting things about, and I definitely want to pick up on this idea of directionally, are we heading towards you know anonymity in participation of DAOs, especially in the context of things like DeFi, I guess, and especially in the context of U.S. citizens um, creating innovations and protocols in in DeFi. Um, but I, I just want to talk about there's a lot of the language that's used in uh, Moloch. There's a lot of references to kind of gaming culture. But do you also think it's representative of this convergence of gaming and Web3? So, for example, rage quit is, you know, a term when you kind of lose the game, you just pretty much, if you don't smash up your controller, you, you, you switch it off at the power socket. Um, there's reference to um, references to loot, for example. There's also this recent uh, feature of a guild kick, and of course, guild being a reference to massively multiplayer um, uh, role playing games. So, is that just coincidental? And it's, as you say, largely based on some of the personalities, or do you think it is representative of a wider kind of cultural convergence between gaming and and Web three? So, I think it comes from the fact that both Amin and I were in a lot of WoW rating guilds back in the day. And, uh, you know, WoW rating guilds were some of the, at least for our generation, at least for like the people who grew up playing this, um, were like some of the OG coordination mechanisms where like you have uh, a bunch of, you sort of have like this hierarchy of users who are pseudo-anonymous, um, who are pooling their efforts. They're basically like 
doing real work, um, you know, really to, to generate what, what are like digital assets, um, which uh, actually even at the time had like real value. Um, and those assets are being pooled together in a guild bank. Um, and uh, the, the participants of each guild are coordinating around um, how those assets should be used, the way that like helping each other get through things, uh, basically like coordinating around this public good in a way that makes sense and, and like benefits everybody. Um, that's probably one of the best examples of this happening like naturally in the wild without any sort of recourse. Like you, you would expect, you know, given the, how much of the internet is made up of trolls and how much of it is made up of, of just like people who really just don't care. Like you would expect that those kinds of social systems couldn't exist. Right? You, you would expect that it, at the very, like there would always be cases where you would have people that would go and just steal all of this and like, you know, and like exit and like, uh, it, but, but they don't. And like, you know, wow, guilds, for, I mean, it happens, but like generally for the most part, guilds are pretty stable and they're, they're pretty, effective at doing what they do um and that also ties into just like how guilds work in general um like both like just you know uh when when the concept of guilds first started to become a thing like the idea was let's get a bunch of artisans who are doing the same kind of thing to ship to, to work together towards a shared goal um and that's that's kind of the the origin of where a lot of the, the like uh like gaming related terminology came from. And I think, I think it's just resonated really well with a lot of people because as it turns out, most people, uh, even though they might not necessarily have been public with it, um, have been involved in, in that community and, and, and involved in that, that type of internet culture. Yeah. And presumably, you know, like a medieval guild also had to deal with, with people, as you say, bonded by a profession or whatever it is, but across borders, across continents that um, didn't know one another, right? And that system somehow had to, to hold. And so I guess that's just amplified when you're talking about it in, in, in context of the internet. And it's really interesting. I imagine how many parents probably looked at their kids playing these games thinking they're wasting their life away when really they're kind of co-creating global governance systems for the internet, right? For the, for the metaverse, um, which is, which is a kind of a cool, a cool concept. Um, and I guess one of the really interesting and ironic if like the outcome of, of, you know, a bunch of people playing, like wasting hours and hours <laughs> and hours. And like, it, it truly is wasting, right? Like, <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's, it's wonderful and it's, it's an interest. It's a fascinating social experience. And it's, it's like, uh, absolutely been extremely informative to, to, to my life and to the lives of many, many, many other people in the world. But like, it would be really fascinating if like it was um, the social confidence that people learn to make on the internet um, anonymously with each other that ends up being the thing that leads to us finding a solution to global coordination, uh, which, which really has been, a, has been like, like Moloch, the, the, the problem that we refer to when we say Moloch has been a problem since the dawn of time. Like this is the biggest issue that plagues humanity. This is this is uh, this is what this is a part of what you know when like uh, writers talk about the human condition. This is a part of what they're referring to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had Marques Miller on talking about the cost of trust, and I've never heard somebody explain it so eloquently. Actually, it was um, it was probably one of the most moving episodes I've had hearing somebody like him 
talk about why he believed blockchain was one of the greatest innovations of all time um, in terms of, you know, the, the coordination of humanity. And like, I know we think that, but like to hear somebody like him say that, who's dedicated his whole life to these kind of problems was, um, was really, really inspiring. And I, I think to your point, you know, is it probable? I'd say yes, right? I mean, I, I think if you can solve for this problem in probably one of the more hostile environments for, you know, the coordination of economic activity, as you say, especially in an increasingly polarized internet and web and, and media environment, if you can somehow elevate yourself above that to coordinate economic activity, I mean, I think we stand a, a pretty good chance of that becoming one of the dominant forms. It's, it's not even necessarily that like the, the version and the vision of Moloch that we created is the one that wins. But the, the, hope, the hope is that like up until now, we just haven't really had, um, we, we really just haven't had any mechanisms to experiment with economics and governance. Like it just, they, before blockchains existed, they're just, the, the, our ability to experiment on these kinds of models just was, was effectively non-existent. Like all we could do is look at these models in the real world and then write them. Or it's theoretical, right? You'd be like a, a theoretical philosophical exercise. Exactly. And like now for the first first time ever, like you can actually do economics and governance in an experimental way. Uh, you can treat it like a science and you can say, okay, well, you know what? Like let's run a bunch of different experiments on a bunch of different governance systems and let's yeah. figure out which one of those governance systems work. And what we what we've been trying, what we try to do, this is a bit bit like uh, it was a bit of a crazy idea, but I'm, I'm glad that it's working a little bit at least. But what we try to do is make it so that, okay, not only are we running these experiments, but now there's an incentive to run these experiments because the running these experiments has been made really, really easy um, because, you know, we, we built this like first original, very minimal experiment that people can, can fork very easily. Um, and also the person who gets this experiment right will end up eventually making a bunch of money because at some point, like someone will build this the right way and then use it to solve a very, very problem. Um, and the, the hope is like, while we can't necessarily say that what we've built in this specific instance is the thing that's going to solve this problem for the world, um, we can say, okay, this is actually might be end up being like a really, really valuable data point. And that data point may be what's needed to get us in the future. Yeah. And to be honest with you, this is the thing that really confuses me when you speak to an economist that isn't excited about the space. It's like, how can you not be excited about the Petri dish that you can play with now, like the building blocks. If you look at the stack around governance and DAOs now compared to a few years ago and the kind of economic experiments you can carry out, like why would you as an economist not want to play with that? I, I, I personally don't, don't get it. Um, so, so where does this go then? Like, you know, maybe two questions. Like the first one is in their current form, what do you think DAOs are and aren't good for? What are their limitations? I know we touched upon this a little bit later, but I don't know if there are like any explicit things you'd say, a DAO's probably not going to help in this instance, but it's going to be really good in this instance for like founders that are listening to this, thinking about you know, when and if they should look to devolve stuff to a DAO. And then the second one is, where does all this go for Moloch? You know, Moloch V3 or, or, or whatever. But let, let's start with the first question. Um, yeah, this is a it's a really interesting question, and it basically gets into like I think it kind of gets into like what your belief is about, um, or not even belief, but what your what your kind of perspective is on on governance and on like political theory. Um, like, what do you like? 
depending on the way that you think about different governance mechanisms and the way that you think about different forms of like economic and 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 systemic uh, architecture for for like human beings, you'll you'll end up with a different answer here. For me personally, I I think bottom up governance is actually going to be one of the most um, uh, most interesting trends within the next like few hundred years. Um, I think like we now for the first time in the history of humanity, just as a result of the internet, not even just not even blockchains, but as a result of the internet, we possess the the ability to communicate and the ability to develop like grassroots efforts that are like built from the ground up by by stakeholders that, that are built by people who actually know uh, the the source material really well, and that that solves a lot of the like core problems that we used to have around. Uh, top-down governance where like you have some overarching entity like a government body or somebody like that telling people okay this is how your resources should be spent this is how things should happen i think that trend is going to be really fascinating because it's it's fundamentally like a more the more democratic and and much more economically efficient way to 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 do things because within the space it's referred to as like like being community governed or like becoming a community project um and uh, and there's so many examples of this, right? Like Uniswap, for instance, like uh, becoming a DAO and like moving towards having a treasury that everybody can like participate in and like vote on and things like that. Like the reason that they're doing that is because um, you can actually have the the core participants and the core users of this product be the key stakeholders, and that's that's something where like we fundamentally have not had the ability to do that in the past. Uh, I think DAOs are going to be really really useful for that trend. Um, I think like the cost of coordination is still one of the biggest limitations of like having more like better community governance everywhere. And uh, however, I, I also think that like there's going to be limitations like we've like we've discussed so far there. There's just so much meat space process that has to happen. Like we're you, you can't really put everything on chain. And there, there are like other things that need to happen around this that that cover the cases where, you know, uh, you know, you don't necessarily want to rage quit. You don't necessarily want to go to chain. You don't necessarily want to like um, enter into some sort of dispute, but you do want to uh, move in a different direction than like other people uh, in, in your DAO necessarily do. Um, I think it's just going to take time to get there and for us to get to the point where we understand the like off-chain, in-person social mechanisms that are fit to do that. So I would say for, for founders that are looking at DAOs, I generally, I generally lean in favor of saying uh, DAOify a lot of things. Um, I, I think like, you know, so long as you're, you're managing your personal legal risk and things like that, I think moving towards a world where there are more DAOs and the DAOs, DAOs run, uh, like much, many more things and many more companies and infrastructures is only more positive because it adds a level of transparency, uh, and, and like makes it a lot easier for anybody to participate, uh, regardless of, of, of their background, regardless of, the amount of money that they might have up front. And do you think, you know, if I think about this in a, I hate to use the word, but let's just say real world context, you know, to what extent can this extend into real life, like everyday life? Um, like I think one of the criticisms of the bottom up movements is that by virtue of being leaderless. So if you look at, you know, the Occupy movement, if you look at the Arab Spring, like, you know, bottom-up leaderless versus centralized, centrally coordinated dictatorship or, or whatever else, they usually get out-competed in the 
mid to long term in in a weird way. Um, like I think like most people will say that this leaderless component is the problem, right? So I don't know um, if you have a, a view on that. I mean, I mean, this is, this is a huge question. If you've got the answer to it, then you probably get a, you're probably going to get a Nobel Peace Prize. But like instinctively, from what you see in the context of running something like Moloch, like to what extent is it Dow plus leadership rather than you know totally leaderless Dow's? Yeah. Um- it certainly helps to have leadership. It certainly helps to have people who are going to be key stakeholders who are like very prominent and very active. Um, I just don't, I think that those leaders need to be people who, who like uh, are, are kind of come from within the ranks of the people who are, uh, who are building the thing rather than be elected or rather than be kind of placed in like from a top-down perspective. So they emerge. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and this is something that like, um, there's there's a lot of really really interesting research that Eleanor Oster did a few years back, um, and she won a Nobel Prize for around sustainable communities of sustainable like public goods governance. And like what she found was that there are lots of specific cases where um, you actually have uh, like institutions or ecosystems or communities self governing and doing it really really effectively and doing it much better than like a, a, an external governance body ever could. Um, and, and in all of those cases, it's, it's based around these being like these things being kind of isolated systems, um, about around, like there being internal mechanisms that have like the people who are participating in these know that they're participants of it. They know that they're financially, or like at least in some way, economically tied to the successful outcome of these organizations. And, um, and they are the ones who are, who have a say, have the ability to coordinate around, uh, what happens in these, in these uh, in these situations, uh, it's not necessarily an external party enforcing that. The idiom that applies really well here is like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, yeah. go together. Um, and this is, it's. I think that that applies to like countries as well, where it's like uh, you'll have countries that are monarchies that have that develop extremely rapidly, um, or or you know uh, move much more quickly than than like uh, other countries would. But then. The ones that end up being very sustainable in the, in the long run are the ones that are actually more democratic. I think we live in a world right now where like people are starting to understand that there's there's kind of this like false dichotomy that you're given where it's like either the government controls everything or corporations control everything. And pretty much in every country, you have like you you have like one of those two options. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that there is actually a third option on the table, which is that you can have organizations and institutions run by people. Um, individual people, like groups of people, and you can have like uh, significantly less government, like top-down governance. You can also have significantly less corporate corporate governance, um, and you can have more of like an, what what is effectively like a somewhat anarchic society. Uh, and I don't mean like complete anarchy where nobody's doing paying attention to each other at all, but um, at least from a like highest level of governance perspective, uh, moving towards a system where you have communities self-operating and self-governing. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm rereading Snow Crash. And of course, um, you know, that, that is basically a, a group of kind of self-governing neighborhoods, usually along ethnic lines. <laughs> but, but like putting that aside, it's, it's quite interesting when thinking about like the metaverse and, and like, again, this conversion through gaming and, and the governance systems that are going to be put in place to, to kind of manage this this digital wealth at the same time at least in the uk you know 
there is an increasing push towards devolution, um, both to regions and then to uh, having mayors that run cities and away from kind of you know centrally coordinated, um, effectively allocation of, of budget, right? Um, and I I remember reading Self Sovereign Individual, and, and it pretty much says that that is the inevitable path. It's kind of the the either violent or gradual uh, unbundling of the nation state into you know much more kind of um, independent principalities. Yeah, and I think I think like even if even if that doesn't happen from a sovereign perspective anytime soon, I think it will happen from like just a like a community governance perspective, where like I, I mean you you see this trend in tech actually, um, where like so many tech companies like there there is this like massive unbundling happening, where large you know horizontal platforms like Facebook are now being turned into like smaller like social networks that are very very hyper focused at one uh, one or many, like one specific area one specific ecosystem um and and all of them, the reason that these things are working and, and like you know they what they do is they focus on a very specific community um provide this like one set of services for that community and then build upwards instead of building outwards um and the reason that it works is that one um owning your user is is kind of been has been shown to be one of the best investment hypotheses in, uh in like the, the last 30 years um and then two uh, it's it's that like in all of these cases you're giving these users you're giving the, these communities the the voice the ability to to self like to to basically like work internally and uh, and and coordinate around the things that they, that they want to do um, and I think DAOs are just going to light a fire under that um, like there's there's so many many companies out there like Mastodon and, and Circle and um, and like other kinds of community platforms where you can go and spin up your own community. Um, the moment that those sorts of things start incorporating DAOs and incorporating actual financial activity into them, that's going to be, it's going to explode. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very interested for when that happens. Arjun, it's been great talking to you. I mean, it's evening time here whilst I'm recording this. So I, I opened up a cheeky bottle of red wine. I've been quietly drinking it while I've been talking to you. And I'm glad I did because it's one of those conversations which deserves uh, a glass of uh, good glass of red alongside it. Um, so thanks for coming on. I found it fascinating. Hopefully, I get to meet you in person at some point in the future. Otherwise, I'll uh, I might see you end up you know voting in a uh, voting on a proposal somewhere. It might be the first way we interact. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.